We're going to be in Numbers chapter 33 tonight. That's where we're starting off. And um, we're going to walk through several places in Scripture. We're going to consider some principles and examples from these places, and then we're going to make an application we'll be done. And I say that to make you feel like we're going to be out of here quickly. I'm making no promises. I so appreciated the message this morning, and there were several, several things that were really highlighted and hit upon that I felt were so important, uh, hating the Word of God and responding to the Word of God and proclaiming the Word of God. But one of the things that was, was really dealt with somewhat extensively was dealing with idols in our lives, things that uh, get in the way of God's will and, and obedience to Him, and, and dealing with those things and getting rid of those things. And throughout the course of this week, I've been kind of chewing on some of that myself as I've just read in my own personal devotions of some of the history of the nation of Israel and, and some of the things going on there. And, and really what I felt led to preach tonight was very much in line with some of the things that we heard this morning. And I think you'll see what I'm talking about uh, as we get into the message tonight. So Numbers chapter 33, we're going to begin in verse number 50. And so once you reach Numbers 33:50, if you would stand with me, and we'll read the, the remainder of the chapter here together tonight. Numbers 33:50 says, And the Lord spake unto Moses in the plains of Moab by Jordan near Jericho, saying, Speak unto the children of Israel, and say unto them, When ye are passed over Jordan into the land of Canaan, then ye shall drive out all the inhabitants of the land from before you, and destroy all their pictures, and destroy all their molten images, and quite pluck down all their high places, and ye shall dispossess the inhabitants of the land, and dwell therein, for I have given you the land to possess it. And ye shall divide the land by lot for an inheritance among your families, and to the more ye shall give the more inheritance, and to the fewer ye shall give the less inheritance, Every man's inheritance shall be in the place where his lot falleth, according to the tribes of your fathers ye shall inherit. But if ye will not drive out the inhabitants of the land from before you, then it shall come to pass that those which ye let remain of them shall be pricks in your eyes and thorns in your sides and shall vex you in the land wherein ye dwell, Moreover, it shall come to pass that I shall do unto you as I thought to do unto them. Tonight I want to preach to you a message that's entitled, Conquered or Controlled? Conquered or Controlled? Let's have a word of prayer. Father, tonight I pray that as we get into your word that you would give us understanding of your ways and how you've worked among your people in the past and help us to remember and be reminded that though thousands of years separate us from these days in the nation of Israel, and though we're not like them in many different ways, that there are so many similarities and, and, and parallels that we could point to in our own lives. And I pray, Lord, that you would just open our eyes and that your spirit would make the application of your word in, in our lives. Uh, 
Lord, do among us what you desire to do, and would you help each of us to seek to be completely and fully obedient to you, not partially, but Lord, that we would be all in, fully surrender, that there would be nothing between our souls and the Savior tonight. We ask this now in Jesus' name, amen. You can be seated. What we just read here in the book of Numbers was uh, some instructions that the Lord was giving to Moses just before, uh, really in, in, the, in the scheme of things, just before they were the, the Israelites were to go in and conquer the promised land. And one of the things that he was telling them, or that what he was telling them to do, was to go in and to take the land that he had promised to them, the land of the Canaanites, and that they were to go in and totally, the word he uses, was to dispossess that land from the Canaanites. Now, I know that the critics of the Lord and, and the critics of the Bible will point to, to this and say it was unfair or somehow unjust that God would take uh, land that belonged to the Canaanites and that he would give it to the Israelites, that he would even allow them or, or command them to go in and to destroy the inhabitants of the land. People will say that, but it's important for us to understand that, first of all, God's ways are higher than our ways, and because he is our creator, uh, he is the sovereign ruler of the universe, and it is totally within his power and within his right to do whatsoever he pleases on this earth. That's number one. Number two, Deuteronomy chapter 9 tells us that it wasn't because of the righteousness or the goodness of the Israelites that he was uh, driving out the inhabitants of Canaan, but that it was because of their wickedness, because they had been wicked against the Lord, and so God was dealing with them, and really, in a sense, was pouring out his wrath on the Canaanites for their wickedness and rejection of God, and in so doing was going to take what was theirs and give it to the people that he had chosen to bless. So it's important for us to remember that. But here's what God is telling now his people. You're to go in there and take the land that I have promised to you and given to you. And you are to totally and completely dispossess the Canaanites of their land. You are to take all of it. You are to drive out the inhabitants of the land. They're not to remain there. All of them are to go. And not only the people must leave, but he says, I want you to destroy their, their altars and their images and, and, and every, everything, their pictures. He says, anything that would be a remnant of the Canaanites and their false religion and their wickedness, their idolatry before God, I want you to destroy it and get rid of it because you are to go into this land and and, and, and you are to, to turn the tables there. You, you are to bring, instead of wickedness, you are to bring righteousness, and you are to live holy before me in that place. Israel was to be the place where the Lord dwelt among his people, and, and he is telling them, when you go in there, I want you to completely and utterly wipe out what was there, and we're going to start fresh with that which is righteous and good and holy. Well, if you read through the remainder of the Old Testament law and especially into the book of Joshua and the early part of Judges, you'll find that they kind of, sort of, and partially obeyed what God told them to do. But not entirely. We'll get to that in a moment. 
What we find from this passage of Scripture and others that we're going to learn are some principles, I believe, that apply to us even today, but some things that we really need to consider and understand. Let me point out to you that, first of all, the first principle that we see here is that God's presence requires holiness. We've been hearing a lot of preaching lately on on God's holiness and His expectation for us in our lives to be holy, But I want you to remember and understand that that's not just because God is some kind of a a, a cruel dictator that expects things of us uh, that are above and beyond uh, our own abilities, but rather it's because God desires to bless us. God desires to do good things among us. God desires to work among us. I believe that God desires to work within Mount Zion Baptist Church. I fully believe that. I believe that God wants to work in your life. I believe that he wants to be present in your life and in your home and in this church, and he wants his his power and his glory to be revealed in us and through us. But we must understand that because God is holy, that anywhere that God dwells and works and, and is actively at work, where the Holy Spirit of God is actively working... There must be holiness in that place. God is holy and therefore expects holiness from us. In fact, it is so much so this way that God, it's not, again, it's not God's anger or his wrath that is driving him to command holiness of us, but it is his love and desire to help us. So much so that if if there is unholiness and uncleanness, God cannot bless us. I want you to hold your place here, but go with me to the book of Exodus, chapter number 33. Exodus 33. Now, in Exodus 32, you'll remember that Moses was on Mount Sinai meeting with God. And the people became impatient with Moses, and, and they made this molten calf of gold that they were bowing down before it. And Aaron, the priest, Moses' brother, actually went so far as to look at that golden calf that was made from the earrings uh, and, and jewelry of the people and was shapen by the hands of man. He pointed to that golden image and he said, These be thy gods, O Israel. Imagine how blasphemous that was to the holy God that had just commanded them, by the way, had just commanded them that they were not to make any graven image to bow down to it. But that's exactly what they began to do. So they come, Moses comes down off the mount. God says, I'm ready to destroy this people. Moses intercedes for them, and God shows his mercy. But look at verse number 1 of Exodus 33. I'll try to get there. I was in Genesis 33. I was in Exodus 33 and looked down and I saw Jacob and I went, uh-oh, that's not good. Okay, Exodus 33, verse number 1. It says, And the Lord said unto Moses, Depart and go up hence, thou and the people which thou hast brought up out of the land of Egypt, unto the land which I swear unto Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob, saying, Unto thy seed will I give it. And I will send an angel before thee, and will drive out the Canaanite, and the Amorite, and the Hittite, and the Perizzite, the Hivite and the Jebusite, unto a land flowing with milk and honey. Stop there. If God had stopped there, I think we would look at that and say, that's a great thing, that's a great promise. God said, okay, I've shown my mercy 
I'm going to forgive this iniquity and wickedness of, of worshiping the golden calf. I'm going to go ahead and send you into the promised land, and I'll even send an angel before you and drive out the inhabitants of the land. You're going to go in, and you're going to receive the blessings of the land, a land that floweth with milk and honey. This is a good thing, except the next thing that God says. Look what he says in verse number 3, after the colon there. For I will not go up in the midst of thee, I'm going to bless you, but I can't go with you. Why? Oh, God, you're so cruel. You're so unkind. No, look what he says. I, I will not go up in the midst of thee, for thou art a stiff-necked people, lest I consume thee in the way. Look at verse number 5. For the Lord hath said unto Moses, Say unto the children of Israel, Ye are a stiff-necked people. I will come up into the midst of thee in a moment and consume thee. In other words, God's saying, Listen, I, I, I promised you I'd go with you. I desire to go with you, but I can't go with you. Why? Because you are unrighteous and unholy and stiff-necked, and if my presence goes with you in the state that you're in right now, it's not going to be good for you. You'll be consumed by my holiness. You're actually going to face the wrath of God because a holy God, when a holy God meets sin, God wins every time. I can't go with you. Sometimes we might think in our own minds, our own hearts, God is just fickle, that you know, he would make these promises to Israel and then, and then he would kind of go back on those promises. And I've even heard people say that before. But folks, it wasn't his, it really wasn't his anger or his wrath that caused him to say, I can't go with you. It was his mercy. He said, I can't go with you because if I do, it's, it's going to be to your detriment. It's going to destroy you. I can't work among you because you're unholy and unrighteous. Folks, I want you to know that the presence of God demands holiness. Now, just in case you say, well, that's Old Testament, and we're New Testament Christians, and, and therefore, because we have the blood of Christ in our lives, there's never a time that God isn't with us and his presence isn't among us. That is true. He said, I will never leave thee nor forsake thee. I'm sealed by the Spirit of God. So are you. If you're saved, you have the Holy Spirit living within you, and His presence goes with you everywhere you go. However, if you choose to live a life of wickedness and unholiness and unrighteousness, guess what? That Holy Spirit of God that is in you is grieved. Because the Bible tells us in Ephesians 4, in verse number 30, and grieve not the Holy Spirit of God whereby you're sealed under the day of redemption. You're sealed, but you better be aware that your sin can be grieving to God in such a way that it actually hinders his ability or desire to work in your life. First Thessalonians, we're told, quench not the spirit. Quenching has that idea of there's a fire that's burning and I'm taking water and throwing it on that fire. I'm quenching the, the burning, God, our God, is a consuming fire, the Bible says. And did you know that our sinfulness and our wickedness and our unrighteousness, though it doesn't overcome God's power, it does hinder what God wants to do in our lives. God's presence requires holiness. 
The second principle we see from this, and you'll, we'll walk through this a little bit as we go through the Old Testament, God had commanded them to drive out the inhabitants of the land. Go back to number 34. Here's the second principle. Partial obedience to God's commandment became Israel's downfall. Partial obedience to God's commandment became Israel's downfall. Back in Numbers 33, look at verse number 55. He says, But if ye will not drive out the inhabitants of the land from before you, then it shall come to pass that those which ye let remain of them shall be pricks in your eyes and thorns in your sides and shall vex you in the land wherein ye dwell. Here's what God said. This is the commandment. Drive out the inhabitants of the land. Tear down their altars. Destroy their pictures. Destroy their molten images. And insofar as you obey that command, I'll bless you. And insofar as you disobey that command, those that remain are going to be a thorn in your side. They're going to be a problem. I want you to utterly dispossess them, utterly destroy any remnant of those people from the land so that you can be a holy, sanctified people unto me. And as much as you allow to remain in the land is going to haunt you. That's what he's saying. Now, go forward with me, if you will, just a little ways. We'll go to the book of Joshua, chapter number 15. Now, in Joshua 9, we won't take the time to read the account of it, but there are some people of the land of Canaan, Gibeonites, the Bible calls them, that they saw what God was doing among the nation of Israel and how everyone that Israel came up against was being wiped out and destroyed and, and caused to flee from their land and they thought this isn't a good thing. So here's what we're going to do. Rather than coming before Joshua and saying, Joshua, listen, we repent of our wickedness against God and, and we want to worship the one true God, Jehovah. They didn't do that. They, they, they feigned themselves. They pretended that they were neighbors from far a far away country. And they came, and they put on old, raggedy clothes, and they took moldy bread, the Bible says, they took it with them. And they came to Joshua and to the elders there, and they pretended that they had come a long journey in order to get Israel to make a, a, a kind of a peace treaty with them, a league with them. But they weren't from a far country. They were Canaanites from that land. Well, Joshua, the Bible says, they didn't inquire the, the voice of the Lord. They didn't ask God what they should do. They just made an agreement with these people. And later they found out that these were Canaanites, some of the ones that God said drive them out, but they had already made a covenant with them. And folks, if you read the Bible, when you make a covenant, there's no going back on that. Okay, so now the Gibeonites, they kind of pulled one over on Israel. And now there's a little portion of the Canaanites who are remaining in the land. Okay, look at Joshua 15, if you would, toward the end of the chapter, verse number 63. Listen to this. Simple statement that's made. As for the Jebusites, the inhabitants of Jerusalem, the children of Judah could not drive them out, but the Jebusites dwell with the children of Judah at Jerusalem unto this day. That's all that's said of it. Okay, so now we got the Gibeonites and the Jebusites that just happen to be there in the land. No big deal, right? Because Israel's bigger and stronger and they have the blessings of God. 
working there. Go over to chapter 17. Verse number 12. Yet the children of Manasseh could not drive out the inhabitants of those cities, but the Canaanites would dwell in that land. Yet it came to pass when the children of Israel were waxen strong that they put the Canaanites to tribute, but did not utterly drive them out. We're going to come back to that in a moment. Okay, so now, now what do we have? Well, we have these people in, in this region in the, the, the land of Manasseh now that, that they weren't able to drive out. So now there's more Canaanites that are there. And we think, oh boy, okay, well at least, at least Israel is, is primarily obeying God. They're trying to obey God. They're doing their best. Yeah, there's a few people that are still remaining in the land because they just struggled to get rid of them. And so we'll just, you know, kind of overlook that and just expect that they're going to be okay, except they're not because there's a snowball effect. Go over a few pages forward to Judges chapter number one. Judges chapter one. This is an interesting verse of the Bible and actually one that you'll hear some of the critics of the Bible point out to say that there's contradictions in the Bible. Here's what it says. Verse number 19, And the Lord was with Judah. Judges 1.19. The Lord was with Judah, and he drove out the inhabitants of the mountain, but could not drive out the inhabitants of the valley because they had chariots of iron. And I've heard, and maybe you have too, skeptics and critics say, well, see, God must not be all-powerful because those chariots of iron really gave him some problems. How silly is that? Uh, who created the earth that has that mineral called iron in it? Uh, who created men with the brain and capability to build, build chariots of iron? This same God that parted the Red Sea and destroyed the Egyptians. You really think the Bible's saying that he could not drive out the uh, the, the, those inhabitants because they had chariots of iron? That's ridiculous. That's not at all what the Bible's saying. The he there is not referring to the Lord. It's referring to the tribe of Judah. In other words, we could put it this way. The Lord was with Judah, and he, Judah, because the Lord was with him, drove out the inhabitants of the mountain. But... He could not, listen to that, he could not drive out the inhabitants of the valley because they had chariots of iron. Did you know that there are certain things that you cannot do that God wants you to do? Some things you can. Some things are in your power and your ability to do. There are some things, though, that God requires and demands of you that are fully without, outside of your abilities. And so what do you need? You need God. You need his help. The Lord was with him, but apparently at some point Judah said, you know what, I've got this. I, I, I already drove out the inhabitants of the valley, or the, the mountains. But then when it came to deal with those people in the valley, he was unable. God wasn't, but he was. All right, so now we got more, the inhabitants of the valley. Okay, a few more that are still there. Go forward just a little bit. Look at verse number 27. Neither did Manasseh drive out the inhabitants of Bethshean and her towns, nor Tanak and her towns, nor the inhabitants of Dor and her towns, nor the inhabitants of Iblium and her towns, nor the inhabitants of Megiddo and her towns, but the Canaanites would dwell in that land. 
And it came to pass when Israel was strong that they put the Canaanites to tribute and did not utterly drive them out. Listen to this. Neither did Ephraim drive out the Canaanites that dwelt in Gezer, but the Canaanites dwelt in Gezer among them. Neither did Zebulun drive out the inhabitants of Kitron, nor the inhabitants of Nahalal, but the Canaanites dwelt among them and became tributaries. Neither did Asher drive out the inhabitants of Acho. And we could go on. You see, over and over and over again, now it started with just these little things. Well, we, we kind of let this one stay in the land. And then once we got comfortable with the Jebusites in the land and the Gibeonites in the land, then pretty soon Manasseh's not able to drive them out. And pretty soon Naphtali doesn't drive them out. And Ephraim doesn't drive them out. And Asher doesn't drive them out. And guess what? Now we've got Canaanites dwelling in the land with Israel. What did God say about that? They're going to be pricks in your, in your eyes and thorns in your side. They're going to be your downfall. You see, it wasn't the, the giants of the land that were Israel's problem. Th those were the ones they feared. They were afraid to go into the land because there were giants. God dealt with the giants. The problem was they did not fully obey the Lord. And when you come to Judges chapter 2, and I told you we're going to kind of walk through this, but look with me if you would. Judges chapter 2. Verse number 1. The angel of the Lord came up from Gilgal to Bochum and said, I made you go up out of Egypt and brought you unto the land which I swear unto your fathers, and I said, I will never break my covenant with you, and ye shall make no league with the inhabitants of the land. Ye shall throw down their altars, but ye have not obeyed my voice. Why have ye done this? Wherefore I also said, I will not drive them out from before you, but they shall be as thorns in your sides. Listen to this. And their gods shall be a snare unto you. Look down to verse number 7. It says, And the people served the Lord all the days of Joshua and all the days of the elders that outlived Joshua who had seen all the great works of the Lord that he had done for Israel. And Joshua, the son of Nun, the servant of the Lord, died, being 110 years old. And they buried him in the border of his inheritance in timnath in the Mount of Ephraim on the north side of the hill Gaash. And also all that generation were gathered unto their fathers, and there arose another generation after them which knew not the Lord, nor yet the works which he had done for Israel. And the children of Israel did, sight, uh, did evil in the sight of the Lord and served Balaam. Listen to this. And they forsook the Lord God of their fathers, which brought them out of the land of Egypt, and followed other gods of the gods of the people that were round about them, and bowed themselves unto them, and provoked the Lord to anger, and they forsook the Lord and served Baal and Ashtaroth. You know what's scary to me about this? Two things. First of all, it wasn't the big, scary giants of Canaan that were Israel's downfall. It was the little allowances that they made for these people to stay, and these people to stay, and these people to stay. That became their downfall. You know, just a little bit of disobedience to God is just as dangerous as a whole lot of disobedience to God. In fact, there really is no such thing as just disobeying a little bit. 
James tells us that if you keep the whole law and offend in one point, you're guilty of all. In other words, you either obey God or you don't. They didn't. I mean, they did in the eyes of man. Basically, pretty much, I mean, all, you know, all can mean a few different things, right? I mean, it can mean pretty much all, mostly. You know, if it, if it rains six and a half days out of the week and you say, well, it rained all week. Well, I mean, it, it rained all week. I mean, maybe not all week. It didn't rain every minute of the week, but basically it rained all week, right? But, and this is a simple statement, but with God, all means all, right? It means, it means every one, every one. And so they, they partially obeyed, but they didn't really obey God. And so these little things that they let slide in their life became their downfall. Here's the other thing that scares me about this. It didn't happen in their generation. Those little allowances that they made for the Canaanites to live there, in the lifetime of those who made the decision to allow them to stay, it didn't affect them much. but it affected their children and their grandchildren. I've just got to stop here and ask, what, what are the things in your life, in your home, in your family, that you say, you know, it's not really affecting me that much? but it is affecting and influencing your children. What are, the, what are those little things that you're allowing to sneak by and, and you're just excusing, nobody's perfect. I'm going to let this slide and let this go and you say, it's not that big of a deal to me, but how's that going to affect your grandchildren? Do you know how long it takes To lose, to go from a godly heritage to, to a generation that doesn't know the Lord. You know how long it takes? One generation. One. That ought to, that ought to be convicting to us. That, 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 that should stir some things up in us that say, what, what are those little things? God's presence requires holiness. Number two, partial obedience became Israel's downfall. Listen, how many kings of Israel, if you've ever read through the, the, the historical record of the kings of Israel, and you, you find that every one of them God labels one way or another. He did that which was right in the eyes of the Lord, or he did that which was evil in the eyes of the Lord. Every, every one of them. But so many of them that we read of, it'll say something like this. He did that which was right in the sight of the Lord... Yet the high places were not removed. It's just this little caveat. He, overall, he was a good king. He was a godly king. He was a faithful king. He did that which was right, but the high places weren't removed. What were the high places? The high places were those little altars that had been set up throughout Israel that basically were just altars of convenience. Jerusalem was far away from some of the 
people. And so they thought, you know, rather than taking our sacrifices all the way to Jerusalem, we're going to set up these high places where we can have these altars. We can go to them and worship the Lord. We're going to worship God, the God of Israel, Jehovah God. We'll worship him there. It's just a convenient place to worship the Lord. The high places in and of themselves were really not places of idolatry. But they became places of idolatry. And you know how it started? It started with people going about worshiping God in the way that they saw fit. They were worshiping the right God, but in the wrong way. And I think that behooves us to make sure that we're worshiping God in the way that he's defined. Those high places were really the, the, the catalyst. It was the gateway to idolatry in the nation of Israel. It was saying, we will worship God in the way that we see fit. And what did it lead to? Well, those Canaanites over there, they serve Baal and Ashtaroth. I guess we will too. Go with me to 1 Kings chapter number 11. 1 Kings chapter 11. Here's what I find fascinating about 1 Kings 11. Really the first 10 chapters of the book of 1 Kings talk about Solomon, his reign, how the Lord put him in a place of authority in Israel, and the wisdom and power and righteousness that he reigned in. I mean, Solomon was a great king. The wisest man that ever lived. One of the most powerful kings the earth has ever seen. And when Solomon was in, uh, in authority, Israel had peace. Solomon was a great king. And the first ten chapters of 1 Kings tell us all about it. But look at chapter 11, verse number 1. The very first word is this, but. Here's the caveat of Solomon's life. But. King Solomon loved many strange women. Together with the daughter of Pharaoh, women of the Moabites, Ammonites, Edomites, Zidonians, and Hittites, of the nations concerning which the Lord had said unto the children of Israel, You shall not go in unto them, neither shall they come in unto you, for surely they will turn away your heart after their gods. Solomon clave unto these in love. Solomon did, did, certainly did that which was right in the eyes of the Lord. He was one of the greatest kings Israel ever had. And guess what? There was a but in his life. However, Solomon loved many strange women. Okay, all right, all right. Nobody's perfect. And Solomon had one area in his life that was a struggle. God had told them, you don't intermarry with these Canaanites. He'd also told the kings of Israel they were not to multiply wives unto themselves. Solomon didn't obey that. Pretty much everything else, but he didn't obey that. Look at verse number 4. For it came to pass when Solomon was old that his wives turned away his heart after other gods. And his heart was not perfect with the Lord his God, as was the heart of David his father. And then look at verse 5. I, I can't believe this. For Solomon went after Ashtaroth, the goddess of the Zidonians, and after Milcom, the abomination of the Ammonites. And Solomon did evil in the sight of the Lord and went not fully after the Lord, as did David his father. 
then did Solomon build an high place for Chemosh, the abomination of Moab, in the hill that is before Jerusalem, and for Molech, the abomination of the children of Ammon. You know who Molech was? Molech was that God that the way that he was worshipped was by taking children and offering them as sacrifice unto this false god, Molech. Causing children, your own children, to pass through the fire, to kill your children in sacrifice to the god of Molech. Solomon went after him. The wisest man that ever lived, that righteous king over Israel, in the end of his life, began to worship Molech. Why? Because there was something in his life that he didn't deal with. Because there was a, a, a one area of his life that he said, I'll obey God up to this point. I'll follow his commandment up to this point. And you know what happened? Exactly what God said would happen, happened. It became his downfall. God's presence requires holiness. And in the, in the case of Israel, partial obedience became their downfall. And then here's the last principle that I want to point out to you. There's a difference. There's a difference between controlling and conquering. There's a difference between controlling and conquering. Go back with me, if you would, to the book of Joshua. Oh, let's go to the book of Judges instead, actually. Judges chapter 1. What does it say of these nations that were left, these people of Canaan that were left in the land? Judges chapter 1. Verse number 28. And it came to pass when Israel was strong that they put the Canaanites to tribute and did not utterly drive them out. You know, when, the, when Israel decided to leave a few Canaanites in the land, here's what they said in their own hearts, and we see this by their actions. We're going to let them live here, but we're going to put them under our thumb. We're going to control them, we're going to oppress them, so that they can never rise up and, and affect us or influence us negatively. So they put them to tribute. That means they taxed them. They thought, actually, this might be a good thing. We'll let them live in the land, and we'll let them pay us taxes. And I'll tell you what, we're going to honor God with this, and I'm just assuming this, filling in the blanks. We're going to honor God with this, and all the taxes that we get from these Canaanites, we'll tithe on those, you know? Me, can't you see that justification in their mind? Don't tell me you've never justified something in your life and thought, you know what, God can be pleased with this because I'll handle it the right way. Because that's exactly what they were doing. They, they put them to tribute, and they thought, as long as we have them under control, then we really don't have to worry about what God said. They can't be a negative influence to us because we've got them under our thumb. But I want you to know there's a difference between controlling and conquering. God had called them to conquer Canaan. He had called them to drive out the Canaanites, to dispossess them of the land. And they kind of did that, but what was left, they decided, we're just going to put it under our control, and we've got this. But there's a difference between controlling and conquering. And often you will find 
that the things that you once thought you had control of really had control of you all along. Samson thought he had things under control, didn't he? In fact, we could honestly say Samson did have the, the Philistines under control. I mean, they tried everything they could to take Samson down, and it always blew up in their face. There was nothing they could do. What Samson didn't have under control was himself. It wasn't those big, strong, scary Philistines that had been oppressing Israel for so long that were Samson's downfall. It was that problem and issue that he had with lust in his own life that caused him to give in a little bit and a little bit and a little bit until finally he found himself being a servant to those people that he had under control for so long with his eyes plucked out, grinding at the mill, wondering where he had gone wrong. Here's the application to all this tonight. I think you've followed me on this. When God calls us to conquer, it is to be total and complete conquering. When God tells, tells us to get something out of our life, it needs to be utterly dispossessed. And if there is something in your life that you're holding on to and clinging to a little bit, thinking, I've got this under control, friend, you are headed for destruction and you don't even know it. When God says all, He means all. We're told in Ephesians 5, there's a list of sins and fornications and covetousness and all kinds of different sins that are mentioned there. He says, let it not be once named among you. Even just a little bit of sin, don't, it doesn't belong there. It doesn't belong in the life of a believer. It doesn't belong in a church. If we want God to work, we need to understand His presence requires holiness. And sometimes it's the little things, those partial disobediences in our lives that can become our downfall. And we need to recognize that there is a difference between controlling and conquering. And really we're not in control if things aren't conquered. So I want to challenge you tonight, friend. To look deep within your heart, within your life. And as we heard this morning and, and as we've heard over the last several weeks, these powerful messages on holiness and righteousness and God's expectations on our lives. Look within yourself and ask God to search your heart and show you what there might be in your life that's just a little bit outside of his plan and purpose for you. You might think that you're in control, but friend... The little foxes spoil the vine. Search your heart and allow God to show you. Hebrews 12 tells us, let us lay aside every weight and the sin which doth so easily beset us. What is there in your life tonight that needs to go, that needs to be dispossessed, that needs to be conquered for the glory of God? Don't let it stay one more minute. As we heard that illustration this morning, don't tuck it under your mattress. Burn it. Get rid of it. Deal with it. 
Let God deal with it. That you can live in victory. That your life can be one that glorifies God. That your children can can be free from some of the plague of sin that maybe creeps into their lives as a result of us not really dealing with things. I'm just saying, let's let God deal with us tonight.